So we're continuing this series on Advent, which is anticipation, an event that is about to take place that will change the world. And as we look back in history and we look back at the Old Testament, we see for a couple thousand years they were waiting for a Messiah to be born, a Savior, a Lord, a King, someone that would save his people and would bring a sense of peace and prosperity to the land. And so this first Advent, the coming of Christ as a child was such a significant event. And they, had, they did not have what we have today as we can study all of God's word to see how it all played out. And so they were living by faith in that time. But we are looking to an, an, an event in our future, which is the return of Christ. And we celebrate at Christmas the hope and joy and peace that Christ came the first time and will come again with the second time. We've looked at three of the Advent focuses, hope, Uh, As we think of hope, we see that hope was born on Christmas and raised on Easter. So hope entered the world on Christmas, and on Easter, he rose from the dead. And so those are our two, in our society, in our culture, those are the two holidays that most people, in some way or another, uh, celebrate or Uh, commemorate in one way or another. And so these are important events. Well, what were they? It was the birth of Jesus Christ, and it was the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They transformed the world, and it transformed eternity according to Scripture. And then we looked at peace. Peace is not the absence of crisis, but it's the presence of Christ. And so peace doesn't mean that there's world peace or even inner peace all the time or that peace reigns but that we have peace with God through Christ. And so peace was born on Christmas, and we can have peace with God, and you and I can experience that peace that passes all understanding, and we can have a beautiful, wonderful, uh, meaningful relationship with God, a peaceful relationship, one built on getting to know him and learning and growing together. And today we're going to look at joy, J-O-Y. When I was growing up, we always said joy, Jesus, others, you. If you want to have joy in your life, put Jesus first, put others second, and put yourself last. C.S. Lewis, he, he said that it's, uh, it's not about thinking of yourself less. It's, a, it's not about putting yourself less, but thinking of yourself less, right? It's not about putting yourself down. It's about lifting up those that God put you here to serve. And so there's a beautiful uh, spirit in joy. Imagine a world where everyone put everyone else in front of themselves. That works a lot better than when we put ourselves first. And so joy is something that Christ came to model for us uh, by how he lived and to give to us as a gift on Christmas, uh, on his birth. And so the focus today is, the focus that we have as we look at these scriptures, is the joy of God's kingdom, the kingdom of joy. Do you believe that heaven will be eternal joy? It's a place where there are no tears and no pain and no suffering, no disease, no hatred, no... uh, gossip anymore, right? That's one thing I'm looking forward to. (laughs) So we have times, I mean, this is a season of happiness. Happiness, you know, is you can eat ice cream and get happy. You can go on a roller coaster, get happy. Uh, You can go on a date and be happy. Happiness is kind of based on your environment and circumstances, and that's why joy and happiness are different. Uh, I get a lot of happiness at Christmas because we like to play table games, and I like winning, (laughs) I'm just kidding. Actually, I do like winning. But 
Uh, here we see, I don't know if you ever played this game, it's called Risk. And I play this, we play this with our family. It takes a long time. It's a long, one of those longer games. Uh, and it's for those people who want to be imperialistic and take over the world. And so you got to be wary of people who want to play Risk. Um, but basically the idea is you get a little, or you get armies and you roll a dice. And if your die is higher than the other person, you conquer their army. And the goal is to conquer the world, right? Conquer the world's conquest. And uh, it brings me a lot of happiness winning and it, and it brings my kids a lot of happiness when they beat me. I think it gives my kids more happiness when they beat me than when I just survive and beat them. Like winning is, is it's like I just don't want to lose to my kids today, right? That'll bring, that'll bring happiness to me. But as you play this game, it's such an interesting thing because this is one of the things we do over Christmas break. One of the things you do over holidays is you play table games and you have fun and you laugh and, you know, it comes down to the wire in some of these but this game especially is a unique game because the goal is to conquer the world. And can you imagine one person conquering the world? Can you imagine what life would be like if one individual conquered the entire world? We all know there's a problem with that. We all know that there's a problem. Why? Because they don't do J-O-Y, Jesus, others, you. They do me, me, me. <laughs> And maybe us. And so we look at the world and we say, um, the real challenge of this season and the challenge of joy is, is underlining this control. Who is really the authority? Who is really the one that governs all things? Uh, who is the one we're to look to when it comes to who's in charge? And so today when we look at this topic of joy, I think it's deep-rooted in um, the kingdom of God. Romans 14, 17 says this, for the kingdom of God is not eating or drinking. Even though I'm sure there's gonna be a lot of good food in heaven, it's not totally about that, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. And so there's righteousness, right living, right relationship with God. There's peace, tranquility, um, a relationship built uh, where you love and adore the Father, and he loves and adores you. And then there's joy, and inner peace, and inner happiness, and inner fulfillment. And that is the kingdom of God. That is what Christ is going to return to bring in fruition, fruition, and then also in what we are celebrating, the birth of joy. The birth of the potential of eternal joy is the birth of Christ, and that is all within the Holy Spirit, and so to live with the Holy Spirit guiding you and leading you, you have joy. That's the place we find joy. And so as we dive in, there's a lot of scripture today, and it's, most of it is in your sermon-based study. I would encourage you to look it over. A lot of wonderful scriptures dealing with the kingship of Christ. Uh, but we're going to look at a few, and we're going to dive into this topic because I believe this is a topic that is really important for us as a church to talk about, for me as a believer to study and to understand. And then when we share with the world, what are some of the core principles of following Christ? What does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength? What does it mean to love my neighbor as myself? A lot of those principles come back to this kingship of God, kingship of Jesus. And we need to understand those principles and those truths that are revealed through God's word. And so we're gonna dive into those. But before we do, let's precede God's word in prayer so that our hearts would be open, our minds would be attentive, and our spirits would be welcoming to the truth that God wants to invite in. Father God, you are holy, you are just, you are righteous, you are worthy, you are wonderful, you are above all of us. You are the same yesterday, today, and forever. You're the Alpha and the Omega. 
And Lord, we come to you now asking for wisdom and understanding that you would reveal things to us that maybe we haven't seen, that you would stir the passion that your Holy Spirit would burn within us, that we would seek righteousness and grace and justice and hope, and that, Lord, through your word, you would reveal to us how we're to live and how we're to treat others and how we're to make decisions and how we're to live these lives that you created for us to have. Lord, we pray that you would speak clearly to us now as we study your word together. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to begin with the context. The context is leading us back. Why is this important? What does it mean? Uh, We're going to look at this idea of kingship and joy and the kingdom of joy. So we're going to begin in Matthew chapter 2, verse 10 through 11. Here's what it says. This is the Magi traveling to find the Messiah. When they saw the star, they were overwhelmed with joy. Entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, And falling to her knees, they worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Last week we looked at frankincense and how that was used by the priest when they would pray in the, in the tabernacle and pray in the temple. And that was the Christ is our uh, intermediary. He's the one that connects us to God. And our prayers are as a sweet aroma to God. And so when we pray, he is at, uh, in, in deep fellowship with us. And so that frankincense represented the baby Jesus becoming the one and only high priest for eternity. And then today we see gold. So I looked it up this morning. An ounce of gold goes for about $2,000. So this is a valuable gift. Now, obviously, it wasn't given recently, but back then gold was very valuable as well. So if you're going to a two-year-old's second birthday or first birthday and you bring gold, the parents are going to love you. The kid's going to chew on the gold. Not going to have a real concept of value. Well, this is valuable. Yeah, to chew on. But they bring him a gift, not because it's uh, particularly applicable to the child, but because it reveals a truth about who the child is. The gift wasn't given as something to use and, and to be valuable to them at that moment, even though I'm sure they used that gold on their trip to Egypt and that gold was valuable and helpful to them. But it wasn't the intent. The intent of the gift was that there was some understanding by this magi on who this child was. They had some background. They had some context to who this baby was, that they were following a star, and when they reached the place of the star, that this would reveal to them the King of kings and the Lord of lords, that this would reveal the Messiah, the Savior of the world, the true king, and and that gold represents kingship. Kingship, it's valuable, it's powerful. Gold, if you have a lot of it, you can sway a lot of opinions, Uh, You can move a lot of things when you have a lot of gold because gold has power. Gold has staying power. Gold has something that everybody uh, in our culture is looking for. Stability, uh, leisure, luxury, all of these things are affiliated with gold. That's why it represents the king. The king is to be strong and capable and able to do things. And so why gold? Why did they choose gold to give to this child? We have to turn all the way back to the Old Testament to see the issue, to see what's going on here. If you turn back to 1 Samuel in the Old Testament, 1 Samuel chapter 8, it gives us the first real picture of what's going on here. And it's really a clear picture as we work our way through Scripture of what the real challenge is and and why it was so significant to give gold to the baby Jesus and why him being a king is so significant as well. 1 Samuel chapter 8, verses 6 through 9, 
says this, when they said, give us a king to judge us. And this is the Hebrew people telling Samuel, who's the, who's the prophet, Samuel considered their demands wrong. So he prayed to the Lord. But the Lord told him, listen to the people and everything they say to you. They have not rejected you. They have rejected me as their king. They are doing the same thing to you that they have done to me since the day I brought them out of Egypt until this day. Abandoning me and worshiping other gods, listen to them, but solemnly warn them and tell them about the customary rights of the kings who will reign over them. The Hebrews have established themselves in Canaan, the promised land, and now they look around to all the other nations and they say, we don't have an earthly king. We don't have a man sitting at the throne. We do not want God to be our king. We do not want God to be our king. Does that sound familiar? Does that sound relevant? Does that sound applicable? To me, it sounds very relevant because I feel as the world matures in its years, it gets less and less interested in the things of God and more and more in its own understanding and own wisdom. But I will, I will even um, move away from that topic and move to my personal understanding. I like to be king of me. I like to be in charge of me. I like to be the one who's the authority in my own life. And I can relate to them saying, I don't want God to be king of everything. You mean everything he's going to be king of? Like every thought, every action, every word, every uh, desire, everything I allow into my heart, everything I allow into my mind. He has to be king of that. That sounds uh, strict, harsh, difficult. And so who's king? There was a point where the Hebrews had God as king. And they said, we no longer want God as king. We do not want the unseen God who created all things to be the king of us. The one who chose Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and Moses to bring us out of Egypt. We no longer want him to be king. And what is God's response? He doesn't say, you better listen to me. You better let me be your king. You better allow me to lead you. He says, no, listen to them, but help them to understand the consequence of having an earthly king. Help them to understand the consequence of having a fleshly king, because it's not all it's cracked up to be. And you might be quite shocked to find out what the results are of having an earthly king. We move forward to Isaiah chapter 9, about 400 years before the birth of Christ. This is verses 6 and 7 in Isaiah chapter 9. This is the prophetic words of the Holy Spirit speaking through Isaiah of a prophecy, a very specific prophecy of something that has not yet happened, but is directly going to change everything. And you've heard this verse because we read it many years during Christmas. You've heard this over your life, but it is a powerful truth. It's something that we would not know except for the Holy Spirit revealing it through Isaiah to us. For a child will be born for us. A son will be given to us. And the government will be on his shoulders. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. The dominion will be vast, 
and his prosperity will never end. He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and sustain with justice and righteousness from now on and forever. The zeal of the Lord's armies will accomplish this. A child is to be born who will be king. The Magi bring gold that represents the king. What is that king going to bring? An everlasting, joyful kingdom. An everlasting kingdom of of peace. An everlasting kingdom of righteousness. Unto us a child is born. Unto us a child is given. He was born to be king. Who is this child that was born? A star that led the Magi to him. Who is this child that would change everything? Who is this child that now echoes from his birth to us today? Who is king? Who is king? See, we all have a problem. We have our king problem. We have our king problem. Not only do nations have king problems, individuals have king problems. The king is the authority. The king is the one who is at the center of all that is done. So we all have an issue, and that is revealed through Scripture. Genesis begins here. This is where our problem started. Genesis 3, when we look back at the very beginning, we see uh, here we have Adam and Eve in the garden. Uh, God has told them, do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now Eve is having this interesting conversation with a serpent And here's how the serpent responds after she says that if we touch or eat this tree, this fruit, we're going to die. Here's what the the serpent says. No, you will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat, your eyes will be opened and you'll be what? You'll be like God, knowing good and evil. The woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was there with her, and he ate it. To understand the importance of kingship, to understand why Jesus must be Lord, King, we must look and see that our sin nature always tempts us to be king. Our sin nature always tempts us to be king. And that's one of our slides is our sinful nature always tempts us to be king. And so we struggle with that. We struggle with our sin nature. How do I know this? You know this. We all know this. Why didn't that person go when the green light came? Why does this person have so much stuff in their cart in front of me and it's in a 10 or only checkout? Why don't, why does this person so loud when they talk? Why are they so loud when they chew their food? Why do they breathe so loud? Why are they not faster? Why are they not slower? Why don't they do what I want? Why is this not the way I like it? Why is it so cold in here? Why is it so hot in here? Why can't this be this way? Why can't that be that way? What are all of those things that constantly form in our thoughts? Kingship. I should be in charge. It should be me, me, and myself. The world should run everything by me. Why do you do it that way? I know a better way. I think it should be done like this. I have a much better plan. I have a much better way of doing these things. We want to be king in every area of our lives. And if we don't recognize that this is part of our nature, all of us struggle with this. This is why the world is so broken, because we don't have a world made up of people that are Jesus, others, and you. We have a lot of people that are you, me, and myself. And that's the challenge. 
It is not a joyous kingdom where everyone is selfish. It is not a joyous kingdom if everyone wants to steal from you because it's going to make them happier. It's not a joyous kingdom if you have to have a password for everything and a lock on everything. That is not a joyous kingdom. But until we recognize that our problem is that we want to be king of us. And we were never intended to be king of us. And we get into so much mess when we uh, push so hard to be king of us. And we are always, we always talk about, you kind of survey uh, the environment and determine what's wrong with it. You know? And we become the kings of our own worlds. And we wonder why we're so unhappy. And we wonder why things seem to be bothering us so much. Because when you are sitting on a throne you are not intended to sit on, nothing but trouble can come. And so we see from the very beginning, this has been our ancestors' issue. This is the thing the king came to solve. This is the thing that Christ came uh, to die for and resurrect to so that we wouldn't have to struggle with it anymore. And that's the beauty of the gift at Christmas. How significant. And so we continue on. Matthew 2. Here's what happens. It's an amazing story. Matthew 2 is telling us the story of Jesus' birth. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea in the days of King Herod, King Herod's family had a lot to do with the story. While the men were eating, uh, while the men from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, they show up in Jerusalem, and here's what they say. Where is he who's been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star, and it is rising and has come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was deeply disturbed. That may be the biggest understatement of all of Scripture. <laughs> and all of Jerusalem with him. So he assembled all of the chief priests and scribes of the people and asked them where the Messiah was to be born. Here's Herod. He has worked out this amazing deal with Rome where he gets to kind of be king of Jerusalem and he's king of this province and he's in charge and here these powerful wealthy leaders from afar come in and they say where is the real king they go to his palace where's the real hey king where's the real legitimate king because it's obvious you're not him this is a disturbing question and it is at the heart of the gospel. If you want to know what's at the heart of being a follower of Christ, why Christianity is what it is, what we're here to worship, what we're here to celebrate, the very beginning is this very disturbing question that you're not a good enough king for you, that you're not a legitimate king for you, and that there's only one legitimate king, and you're not it. And that you and I will never measure up to be that king. I will look in the mirror every day and say, I will never be the one that I need to be to save me. I will never be the one. I, there's not, it's not by might or power that I can save me, but only by the, the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. It's a disturbing question. Being called a sinner is a disturbing statement. Thinking of yourself as lost, needing a Savior and a Lord, is a disturbing question. I recognize that. That's where it starts. Jesus always started with the tough question. Are you willing to accept that or not? 
Because that's the starting point. The starting point is who's king, who's Lord, who's Savior? Who's on the throne? Who's going to save you? Who's going to bring peace and joy into your life? Are you going to do it? Are you the true king of yourself? You see, we're Herod. I pray that all of us, at some point, this really bothered us. (laughs) Because if it never bothered you, I don't know if we really understand it. It should bother us that I'm lost and I need a savior. And that should, that, that's what leads us to I need a savior. That we, that we wrestle with that question. We wrestle with that reality. We wrestle with this disturbing question. And this is what Herod had to do. He had to wrestle with this question of who really is the king. And so here's what he does. Here's Herod's response to finding out who the true king is. Matthew 2, 16. Then Herod, when he realized that he had been outwitted because they sneak away without telling him where Jesus is, when they realized he's been outwitted by the wise men, he flew into rage and he gave orders to massacre all of the boys around Bethlehem who were two years old or under in keeping with the time he had learned from the wise men. King Herod says... Oh, you think you're going to get away? I'm the king. Go back to 1 Samuel. If they, if they don't want God to be king, just be wary what an earthly king can do. Can you imagine? Can you imagine a king of, of Port Orange saying, every young boy two years and older is to be put to death tonight? Is that the kingdom you want to live in? Is that the kingdom we want for ourselves? Is that the kingdom of joy and peace and purpose and hope? This is the the consequence of saying, Jesus will not be king. I don't care. I will kill any thought of Jesus in my life. I will not go near a Christian. I will not listen to any of it. I will not hear any of this the rest of my life. I will kill anyone who, in my mind, they will no longer be my friend. They will no longer be associations of mine. I will have nothing to do with anyone who claims that Jesus is their king. I don't want to hear it. I don't want to be around it. I don't want to tolerate it. A reaction to the disturbing question of who is king is to eliminate the possibility that Jesus could even potentially be your king. And so you cut off relationships, you cut off possibilities, you cut off any avenue that would even hint that you need Jesus as your Savior and Lord. And that is a challenge. That is something we all have to decide. But we also have to have empathy and love for those who make that decision. That that is a harsh and hard decision to live through. That is, the, that, is the, that is the joy that can only be found uh, by having little children murdered. That, there's no joy in that. It is a decision that leads to despair and, and anger and hostility. There's no love or peace. And so we, we can't condemn or, or judge. We have to love and have empathy and desire to lovingly speak into their lives and say, he's the true king. I'm not the king. And if you try to be king, it's not going to work. So that was his response. Kill any possibility of Jesus as king. 
Jesus and his family hide in Egypt for a while. Then they make a journey to Nazareth when they're told by the angel it's safe to return. And then Jesus is raised at about 30 years of age. He begins his ministry. Uh, he has about a three-year ministry. At the end of that ministry, the powers to be, both Roman and Jewish, are not fans because they see him as a threat. And he is being accused of claiming to usurp the king. And so now we're back at the king question. Who's the authority? Who's the king? Who's the true king? And we turn to John chapter 18. And now you have Pontius Pilate, who's in league with the new Herod, who's the son. Doesn't get much better. Their family line is rough. Pontius Pilate, when uh, then Pilate went back into the headquarters, summoned Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Are you asking this on your own, or have others told you about me? I'm not a Jew, am I? Pilate replied, Your own nation and chief priest handed you over to me. What have you done? Pilate just asked the most important question there, and he didn't really dive in to get the answer. It's the question that we all need to ask. What has Jesus done? What did Jesus do? And when we trust God's word, we see what he did was he was born by the power of the Holy Spirit. He lived a perfect life. He died on a cross, was dead for three days, and rose again and claimed to give salvation to those who would trust him as Lord. If Pilate would have just understood that, he would have found hope and peace and been part of the kingdom of joy. When he would have just recognized that important question, Jesus, what have you done so that I can put my faith and trust in you? Why are they making these claims about you? Are you really the king? Matthew 27, 27 says, then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the governor's residence and gathered the whole company around him. They stripped him, dressed him in scarlet robe. They twisted together a crown of thorns, put it on his head, placed a staff in his right hand, and they knelt down before him and mocked him. Hail, King of the Jews. Then they spat on him and took the staff and kept hitting him on the head. After they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe, put his own clothes on him, and led him the way to crucify him. Jesus started by Magi following a star to the true king. At the end of his earthly ministry, they mocked him. And they dressed him up as a false king. And one of the realities that we live in is if Jesus isn't my king, then I have to get rid of him somehow. And I will mock and belittle and distort And believe it or not, we're all capable of doing that. Do you know, I think the greatest mocking I found in my own life, the greatest mocking of Christ is claiming to be his but not acting anything like him. Claiming to be his son, his child, he's my savior, and treating people horrendously, and then saying, I'm a Christian. I believe that's the greatest form of mockery of Christ that there can be. People might make fun of Christians and think we're foolish for believing the Bible and believing all these things, and that's okay. 
But the truth is, is when we don't live out our faith and we don't let Christ really be Lord, that we mock him the most. In the Ten Commandments, it says, do not take the Lord your God's name in vain, for he will surely hold all accountable. To be a Christian is to be Christ, to be his disciple, to be his reflection here on earth. People should see Christ in you. They should see love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, self-control. They should be selfless, not self-centered. Jesus put others in front of himself. He served uh, the lowliest of the low. He went where no one would go. Uh, When the lepers were unclean and no one wanted to go near him because they had an uncurable disease, he went and dived right in and said, I'm here to serve you. We need to be careful that we don't look at the world and judge it without looking in the perfect law of love and looking at our own lives and our own hearts and our own attitudes and our own uh, motives. John 19 says, Pilate also had a sign made and put on the cross. It said, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read the sign because the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city and it was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, don't write the king of the Jews. But that he said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate replied, what I have written, I have written. On the cross, he is mocked as a, as a false king in their eyes. And then there is a sign placed in all the languages of those that would have lived in that territory by the city that says king of the Jews. From being born in a stable to dying on a cross. We can mock and we can reject. That was, that was the path Christ led to establish and pay for our kingdom. He was mocked and rejected so that he could create a joyful kingdom. He could take all of that mess upon himself He could take all of that sin upon himself and pay for it so that you and I could have a joyful kingdom to look forward to. A kingdom where you don't have passwords and you don't have to lock your doors. A kingdom where you don't need any kind of medicine. A kingdom where you can't get in debt. A kingdom where there's no uh, strife relationally. We all know that's what we want That's why we fight for it. We all know that this is broken. There's not a person you'll ever meet that says this is heaven. Because we all know in our souls, something is not right here. Something is not as it should be. Because there is something that is leading us to that. There is something that gives us an appetite for that. God has written on our hearts his law and his truth. He's given us a revelation, a revelation of who he is. Even as he is going to the cross and he's having this discussion with Pontius Pilate, he says this in verse 36 of John 18. My kingdom is not of this world, said Jesus. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. You're a king then, Pilate asked. You said that I'm a king, Jesus replied. I was born for this. He goes back to the birth. I was born for this. And I have come into the world for this. He's eternal. He has entered in to testify to the truth. 
Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And then Pilate asks another amazing question. He, he leads us to the right place without going there himself. What is truth? Said Pilate. What is truth? Who is the true king? Who is the true Lord? You know, we say Jesus Christ, and you know that Christ is a designation of kingship. So when you say Christ, you're talking about the king. And when we say give your life to Jesus to be your Lord and Savior, that Lord word is just a word that we haven't really uh, uh, evolved over time. It, it means king. Your king and Savior. He, he was born to be king of you and me. And what kind of kingdom does he have? He has a kingdom of peace and joy and righteousness. And what kind of kingdom do we live in now? Brokenness and hatred and, and mistrust and, and corruption. We know what the bad kingdom looks like because we live in it. And Jesus was born. He took that upon himself so that you and I could put our faith and trust in the King of kings and the Lord of lords who will return and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is king, both in heaven and on earth. You just to get to do it now, he's, he's calling us, he's calling us to himself. He tells his disciples, even before, he, he has so much empathy. He has so much love for his disciples. He wants them to know that they can put their faith in him, that they can put their trust in him, that they don't have to run away and hide. Because he says in John 16, he says, Truly I tell you, you will weep and mourn, because I'm going to the cross. But the world will rejoice, and Satan will rejoice, and people will rejoice when they see me on the cross, because they think I have lost, and I, and I was a failure, and I was not truthful. You will become sorrowful. But look what happens. Your sorrow will turn to joy. When a woman is in labor, she has pain because her time has come. But when she has given birth to a child, she no longer remembers the suffering because of the joy that a person has been born into the world. So you also have sorrow now for a little while, but I will see you again. And listen to this. This is so valuable. Highlight this. John 16, 22. Remember this. Focus on this. Let this be your treasure. But I will see you again. Your hearts will rejoice. And no one will take your joy from you. Let me tell you something, ladies and gentlemen. Let me tell you something, brothers and sisters. The people he's talking to, some of their kids get burned alive because Nero wants to see what it would look like if Christians could be burned uh, as lanterns. Some of them were torn apart. Some of them were sawed in part. Some of them were uh, fed to the lions. And do you know what they did while these horrendous things were doing, being done to them? They said, great are you, Lord. And worthy of glory, great are you, Lord, and worthy of praise. You can take my body and kill it, but you cannot take the joy that is in my soul. You can steal everything from outside. You can steal my money, my job, all of my things, but you cannot steal my joy. Because you didn't give me the joy. Christ, the king, gave me the joy. Christ the king gives you the joy because his kingdom is a joyful kingdom. 
And there is no kingdom that compares to the joyful kingdom that Christ is establishing. And that's why we sing, joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. How many will sing that song and not recognize what the gift is being given? The final revelation is found in Revelation eleven fifteen. It says this, the seventh, angel, the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there was a loud voice in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. If you study the writings Anytime it's twice, it means it's emphatic. So he says, forever and ever. Forever and ever. You know what I ask myself, Mike, will your money last forever and ever? Will your happiness, will your college football last forever and ever? Will that nice meal last forever and ever? Will the United States of America last forever and ever? Will your nice feelings and good uh, health last forever and ever? Put anything in that equation and find out what it gives you. It's an easy equation. Put it in. What are you seeking? What is your king? What is the most important thing to you? What is the thing you're putting your hope and faith and trust in? Put it in the equation and say, will it last forever and ever? Or is it like everything else, temporary and fleeting? Christ was born to offer you an eternal, joyful kingdom where he is king and you are his child and you reign eternally. That is a faith statement. That you either believe or you don't. This is the gift of freedom we've been given the will of our hearts and minds. Will I choose him as king or will I choose me as king? Will I choose the the dollar bill as king or my job as king or my relationship as king? What will be my king? Will it be Christ, the king, or something else? Because the gift of gold for a king of a joyful kingdom is what we're offered today. Do you want that? Does your heart desire that? This is the whole reason we gathered here. This is the message we want people to know. This is what every man, woman, and child at least should have the opportunity to say, yes, I believe, or no, I don't. I don't, this, this is nothing to force. This is something to share. Because it's really good news. It's amazing news. So consider these questions this morning as we wrap this up. Who is your king, really? Who is your king? Who is the king of you? How do you know this? How do you know who's your king? How do you really know who's your king? If you say Jesus today, let me ask you this. How has Jesus impacted your thoughts and actions? If he is your king, how has he impacted your thoughts and your actions? If Jesus is king, how has he impacted you? And then finally, who do you know that needs to know King Jesus? Who do you know that needs hope and peace and joy and direction and purpose and meaning and value. This is the task we've been given. 
to share this good news with the world. Number one, thank God for his kingdom of joy. Have you thanked him today? Do we thank him regularly? Are we intentional about thanking God for his joyful kingdom? Second, this is the hard thing. This is the thing that I think trips so many people up. We have to confess sin. I have to say I'm not perfect. I messed up again today. King Jesus, help me. And this isn't just like 10 years ago, a sin you committed when you were a teenager or 30, whenever that was. <laughs> this is a sin today. This is, we all struggle. We're still in the muck and mire of a broken system, a broken world filled with sin. It's not a big deal if I can see all your sin really easily. That doesn't help. <laughs> I need to be able to see my sin and then confess it and leave it at the cross and say, this has already been paid for. This has been paid for. It has been dealt with. It will not be held against me. I'm going to move forward in victory. Let's confess sin. Because I believe the power that demonstrates in a life that transforms the world around you and people start believing this truth is when they see it in your life. And that happens through confession. Confession. And then pursuing the truth. So how do we do that? We need to ask the Holy Spirit to guide us, to, to give us understanding. I seek you in the morning. I seek you at lunch. I seek you in the evening, understanding that you have the, the true way, the best way. You know the end. You know the beginning. You know everything there is to know about me. So I'm going to trust you, and I'm going to ask you to lead me. And then finally, share the news of Jesus' kingdom. This is really good news. We need good news, amen? People could use some good news today. I could use good news. You could use good news. This is really good news. This news, kind of, if, if all the other news is a bomb, this news cuts the cord to that bomb so it won't blow up. This news gives peace in battles. It gives hope even when all things seem lost. It gives joy even when your circumstances aren't happy. But we need to share it. We need to share it. We watched the Christmas Carol. We need, we, we need to be like Scrooge after he had all the dreams and all the ghosts, right? Buying the goose for the neighbor and like, hey, we got some really good news. It's awesome news and you need to hear it. It's wonderful, fantastic, powerful, amazing news. And I really want you to know it. And, and it's something you can have right now. What is God saying to you? At this moment, what is he speaking into you?